changing the world. That's what the church is doing. It's what the church is supposed to do. Uh, that's uh, what we're reading about now as we work through as we work through Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter eight, verses twenty-six through forty. The church to the world, leaving Jerusalem and going to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this morning, the church will begin to reach the ends of the earth, and uh, you'll. You'll see that as we get there to the end uh, of this passage. Uh, there, are, there are three major emphases, actually one major emphasis, and then probably three variations of that emphasis as we studied experiencing God. Um, let's see, let me, which, which one's the, the one that's blowing us out? Okay, uh, this one sounds like, is that loud to y'all? Yeah, that's loud to everybody. There we go, that's probably better. That works. Three variations on, on this major emphasis that we learned from experiencing God. The first one is when God invites us to join him, he is already working. He's already there. Now, some of you might, what's he talking about experiencing God? We went through the experiencing God study uh, in the winter, spring this year. Uh, about 75 of our uh, adults and teenagers went through it. We, we learned when God invites us, He's already working. A, a variation on that, we learned when God shows us where, we, where he is working, that's our invitation to join him. And then stated similarly, although with some variation again, look for where God is working and join him there. So those are the, the three variations of the major theme that we learned in experiencing God. What we see in this passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, is that Philip exemplifies all three of these in this one short passage. Now, there's, there's one that, let's be honest, Philip kind of cheats a little bit a couple of times, um, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about when, you know, it's easy to know where God wants you to go when you suddenly appear there, right? I mean, that, come on, that, but, but we still see uh, his reaction to that and, and him living out some of those principles that uh, we talked about in experiencing God. So read with me first, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. An angel, uh, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on his way home, reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. The spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe this generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or, or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? Verse 38, so he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. 
Philip appeared in Azotus, and, as, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So remember where we left Philip. Uh, we left Philip in Samaria. He had been preaching to large groups uh, while he was in Samaria. He had had his little encounter with uh, uh, Simon the magician, and Peter and John came up, and, and we, we had that issue with Simon. That got rectified, and, and people were coming to the Lord, and uh, they were rejoicing. There was great joy in the cities and towns, we read, when, when Philip showed up and was preaching the gospel to them. Let's remember who Philip is, right? He is one of the seven, one of the benevolence committee assistants that were, were elected back there in uh, chapter 6 of Acts to, to, do, to help the benevolence committee do the serving. These aren't pastors as far as we can see uh, in Scripture. These aren't, uh, they certainly weren't the apostles. They weren't uh, called evangelists necessarily. They were just simply, and I use that term ironically, uh, they were simply helpers. And look at the power with which they preached and the power with which they went into their, uh, their neighborhoods and their towns and, and the world. So that's who Philip is. And, and verse 26 tells us that an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, get up and go south. All right, you're in Samaria. You're north of... Uh, Israel, you can't, uh, north of Jerusalem, you can't see it on that map, I'm not going to try to tell you, but Jerusalem was here, you're up here in Samaria, I want you to go south to the road that goes into the desert, toward Gaza, Gaza was on the coast, uh, it was where, uh, big dude, Goliath lived, uh, down in that area was, was where he was heading, that's the road you need to take, God told him through the Holy Spirit, get up and go south, now, you remember how Mo, or Abraham was told to, to, to leave her, not his wife, the place her. Not leave her, but leave her. I thought it was funny in my head. Okay, anyway, um, he, God said, get up and go to the place I will show you. Now, you all, I don't think you can get more vague in your directions than that. Get up, leave your home, and go to the place I will show you. I mean, already you're, you're, you're wondering, which direction should I go? You know, I, I, okay, well, I'll, I'll get up. That's about the only concrete uh, instruction he got. Second unto that is the instruction to Philip right here. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. All right, there are a couple of options on roads here. Uh, that he could have taken, but get up, go down to that south road. If somebody told you, get up and go down to the road that goes from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, which road would you take? I mean, you'd, maybe you'd take I-10, maybe you'd take uh, 60, uh, it was airline, 61, airline highway, what is it that runs down there? Maybe you'd take 90, that's, uh, uh, well, I guess 90 is actually south of Baton Rouge. You have options though, right? These are some extremely vague directions. And on top of that, there's no definite goal. Get up and go to this road. Am I a highway worker now, Lord? What am I exactly going to be doing on this trip? Get up and go. Well, we need to understand when God invites us, He's already working. 
God was not confused by vague directions. God had, didn't have a, a senior moment here and say, oh, I didn't tell Philip what to do. Oh, man. No, it, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew where he was sending Philip. He knew what he was sending him to do, even though it may not have made sense to Philip and probably didn't at all at the time. Here he's got what was probably a very thriving ministry in Samaria, and God says, get up and go to a road. Not another town, not another city, not to a group of people, to a road, to a place, to a junction. That just didn't make sense. But God had prepared an encounter. God had been working long before Philip ever got to Samaria. God had in place and in his plans exactly what was going to occur next. Because when God invited Philip, God was already working in, that, in the life of that Ethiopian eunuch. So he says in verse 27, He got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. It was not uncommon for kings and queens to have eunuchs as their uh, servants in the palace. It, it removed a lot of temptation to say without being too graphic. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your neighbor after church. Um, and they'll tell you. But that's the kind of person, and we're going to talk about a little bit more what that meant for this man at the end of the message this morning. But right here, what we obvious actually I'm going to talk about it now. What we see about him now is that he was a Gentile and he was a God-fearer. Now, he was a Gentile because he was Ethiopian. He was not Jewish. But he had been in Jerusalem to worship. And God, and God tells Philip, go and join him in verse 29. The thing about him going to Jerusalem to worship is that he couldn't really worship. See, he was a Gentile, so there was only so close he could get to the temple. But worse than that, or at least added to that, was the fact that he was a eunuch. He couldn't get even as close as a Gentile, I don't believe. Nadine will correct me if I'm wrong on that, but you could not... Get a, a, a Gentile couldn't get close, and a eunuch couldn't get close. Even if you were a Jewish eunuch, you could not get close to worship. He was an outcast. He was an outsider. He was the next step from the Samaritan. Remember, Acts 1.8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem to my people, my, the Jews, to Judea, still the Jewish people, to Samaria. Now, what are you talking about, God. Samaritans, okay, they're at least kind of Jewish. They're, they're sort of Jewish to the ends of the earth. And now we see Philip show up to this single encounter. He's been preaching to groups, and God has directed him to one person. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say God snapped his fingers and uh, Philip ended up at the road. He went from Samaria down through uh, Israel, through Judea, Jerusalem, and started down that road toward Gaza. He had to work to get there, and he is going there for one person. One person. One premeditated, prepared encounter. This one gentleman, while he was the next step after the Samaritans, he also represents the ends of the earth. 
Ethiopia was considered by many in the Middle East the end of the earth. If you got down the Nile, or I think technically that's up the Nile, uh, to Ethiopia, Ethiopia, you were at the edge of anything anybody ever bothered going to. You were on the outside of the world, or the end of the earth. The other thing that makes this man special is he very likely becomes the first missionary outside of the Middle East. Uh, Ethiopia has an incredibly rich Christian history, and for a long time they were a very strong Christian nation for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it is thought that their Christianity may have begun with this one palace official that Philip had to go see in a dusty spot in the road on the way to Gaza. Do you think God is working out the elements and the details of your life? When God says, go, when God invites us, he's already working. It does not matter if we have the details. It does not matter if it makes sense to us. It does not matter if we can see what the plan is. All that matters is that God said, go, God invited And he was already working out the plan. And it's not just for Philip. Well, let's keep going. Verse 30, Philip ran up to the chariot. He heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Second point we need to get this morning. When God shows us where he's working, that is our invitation to join him. Now, was it clear to Philip... Maybe I should say this because in a courtroom we, we would have that would be objection. Um, what is it when you think you know what somebody else is thinking? There's an objection in all the courtroom speculation. Thank you. Objection, speculation. Okay, let's not go with what you think Philip is saying. What or thinking? What would you think? Would you think? Wait, that gentleman's reading Isaiah. I wonder if God's working on his heart. Maybe, you think? You think God's working through his word? Because I'm pretty sure his word says he works through his word. I'm pretty sure his word, I believe it's Isaiah, says his word will not return void. I I believe that's what his word says about his word. Therefore, Philip's walking up says, he's reading Isaiah. God, you work this out. When God shows us where he's working, that's our invitation to join him. I guarantee you he thought God's working here, and that was his opportunity. He knew this is why God put me here. Of course, it also helps verse 29. It says, go join him in that chariot. Yeah, but still, I, I'm, I'll, I will confess that I tend to be spiritually hard-headed. And if I had heard the voice of the Lord say, go and join that chariot, I like to believe that I'd have hightailed it just like Philip did. I'd have run right over to that chariot. But I also know me well enough to know when I've heard an, equal, an equally clear command of God that I did not do what I was told. Now, I know none of y'all have ever done that, but I have had an occasion to do that, to say no when I knew God was telling me to do something. So, it's still impressive that Philip responded in obedience God showed him where he was working he said go to the chariot God showed him what was happening in that Ethiopian's life as he sat there and read Isaiah and he joined him there he joined God in his work he knew God was working on that Ethiopian and then as he gets closer 
He says, uh, he heard him reading. Uh, It doesn't say he heard what he was reading. He just asks him, do you understand what you're reading? Philip, full of the Holy Spirit, probably raised in a good Jewish observant home, had had read the scriptures, had the scriptures taught to him in synagogues, and he's thinking, you know what, because I've been to Sunday school all my life. I, can, I might be able to help this guy at least a little bit understand what he's reading in case he's struggling. So do, do you understand it? Just an open-ended question, just starting a conversation. I don't know think it would have made as good a story, but it would have been okay. It would have been okay if the Ethiopian had said, no, I don't understand it, I'm reading this passage, and Philip goes, wow, that is a tough one. Well, let's, let's look and see what it says together. You know, that's, that's an alternate ending, an alternate reality that didn't happen, but I think it could have ended up the same way if Philip had been willing, if we were willing to hear when God was putting us in a position and respond to what God is doing in that person's heart. So he knew God was working on the Ethiopian, the, and, and what, he, what he realized once he did fa- find out what the passage was, the passage he was reading was this, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. Philip immediately knew... I just saw this. I, this is what we've been, we, we've been telling people about. This, oh my goodness. You know, he, he, he could have been reading anything from Isaiah. I, you know, Isaiah's testimony of the Lord uh, was in his temple. In the, in the uh, days that King Uzziah died, I was in the temple of the Lord. And I heard a voice, whom shall I send? And, and uh, I said, here am I, send me. It could have been that passage. And, and, and the Ethiopian could have been questioning, well, maybe I'm supposed to be a better witness for, for Yahweh. You know, any, anything could have happened. And yet this is what God had prepared for Philip. This passage that had just been fulfilled by Jesus, whether this was now a few months or a couple of years past the crucifixion, he knew. And then Philip, look, at, look back at that question. Uh, he, Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? And, and look at the question the Ethiopian asks. How can I unless someone guides me? Y'all, I know that's, the, that's, how, that's what we all want. We all want to go and sit down in a restaurant, or sit down on the airplane or, or wherever, in the, the doctor's office, wherever you go, and somebody plop down next to us and they sigh really big and heavy. And, for, and you go, rough day, huh? And for them to say, yeah, I just wish I knew somebody who could tell me how to ask Jesus into my heart. I mean, that's what we want. And then we like, hold on, let me call my pastor. No, don't do that. Sadly, that's what some people would do, but don't. You see, you would, wow, ripe fruit is what John, uh, uh, James McDonald calls this in our uh, vertical church study we did la- last summer. Uh, ready to be picked. The Ethiopian here was ripe fruit, ready to be picked. He asks this leading question that, that we all want people to ask. Let me ask you a question. Or maybe present a scenario. Maybe that question has been there more times than you knew. But because you were comfortable preaching to the crowds in Samaria, 
When God told you to get up and go to a road and you thought that doesn't make sense and I don't have enough instructions and surely that's not what God's telling me to do, that he would never ask me to do this random thing like go to a road and you argue with God about it and then you don't do it, what you miss is that easy question, that ripe fruit that God had prepared for you to find, but you were disobedient. When God shows us where he's working, that is our invitation to join him. But we miss it sometimes because we disobey that vague command. Y'all, in the Christian life, in ministry, it is full of vague commands. There are times after times after times when God says... I want you to do A. And what we don't realize is A is just the first step to get to Z. And we've got 24 more steps to take. But we don't see B or C, much less Q, R, or S. But God sees Z. And we argue with him about A because we are not comfortable with A. And we don't like A. And A looks stupid. And A wasn't my idea. That was his idea. And we didn't call him to do A. We called him to do Z. When God is saying, if you would just do A, I will get you to Z. And so we miss the easy question. Because we don't want to follow the command to even start. So, second, when God shows us where he's working, that's our invitation to join in verses 30 through 35. And then thirdly, the third variation, look for where God is working and join him there. In verses 36 through 40. Again, Philip got off easy on this. Uh, loud voice, go to this spot. Loud voice, go to the chariot. Poof, and he was gone. Uh, here in verse 40, but still we see, we understand Philip was constantly wondering, where is God working now? He may not put it in those words, but he was aware that God was working on the hearts of the people. He'd seen it in Samaria. He preached and hundreds came to Christ, and so he knew people were working on his, the, the, God was working on people's hearts there, and there was great joy in those cities, and, and he knows what happened when Stephen preached, and uh, he, he's heard the stories of Pentecost. Maybe he was at Pentecost. Maybe he was one of the converts there. Maybe he was one of the 120 in the upper room the day of of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on them in that room. We don't know how far Philip's religious or believer's history goes back, but what we do know is that as he went through life, he was prepared to see what God was doing around him and then join him there. Verse 36, as they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So we see here the Ethiopian is following through. Obviously, we don't have the whole conversation that uh, Philip and the Ethiopian had. At some point, Philip explained to him, told him all about Jesus, beginning with the Old Testament. You realize Philip didn't have the Roman road. Philip didn't have uh, can we talk. Uh, Philip didn't have faith. 
uh, evangelism, F-A-I-T-H. Philip didn't have evangelism explosion. Philip didn't have uh, Christian witness training. Uh, Philip didn't have uh, the gospel of John to tell them to go and read. He didn't have John 3.16 to expound to him, though he may have heard about how Jesus had taught it. All the scripture he had was the Old Testament, and he led somebody to Jesus with the Old Testament. Let's back up just for a second and up to about 45 to 50 AD, 20 years after the crucifixion. That's all they had to tell people about Jesus with. When the early church got together, they used this part for their Bible study. They didn't use this part because they didn't have this part, right? You're not ill-equipped to share the gospel because you don't have the Roman road memorized or you don't have a, 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 an evangelism training uh, by heart, a method by heart. If you can tell people what happened to you, oh, I was a sinner, I was lost, I understood my sins, I understood my sinful mess, I understood that I, I couldn't save myself, I had tried to get better and do better and be better, and I just couldn't. Every time I tried, I'd fall back, it just it wouldn't work, I couldn't clean myself up. And somebody told me about Jesus. In this case, Philip says, the suffering servant that you're reading about right here in Isaiah, the, the lamb led to slaughter, the, the, the one who was humiliated, he didn't get justice, that was Jesus. But he was humiliated and didn't get justice so he could save us. And, and if, you, if you can do that, you can share the gospel with people. And if you're obedient, the gospel is there to be shared, there to be received. The people are there to receive it. So the Ethiopian follows through in baptism, probably as Philip had told him, look, here's water. So uh, you, you might have noticed I skipped verse 37. Uh, a lot of your Bibles probably don't even have it in the main text anymore, uh, but you'd probably have a footnote down at the bottom. Here is your biblical scholarship lesson for the day. Verse 37 does not understand, let me back up for a second, we don't have the Bible in English until about 16, late 1500s, early 1600s, uh, we got the Bible in English. You go back further than that, it's mostly Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. There are also thousands of copies, of, uh, thousands of handwritten copies of the Bible, and some, they don't all agree. Some of them uh, don't match up, and, and most all the... Uh, the additions or the, quote, mistakes are, have you ever copied something from the board at school or a piece of paper here and you're copying it here and you realize that you, when you got to the end of the line, you came down here and you looked over here and you left out the word that was at the end of the line over here because you came down or maybe you doubled up the word. That happened a lot, handwriting, thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Other mistakes, misspellings, that sort of thing. But occasionally, occasionally, something would be added to the scripture as clarification. Uh, sometimes it would be uh, over on the side in a little margin note, but the way it was written over time as it got copied, it got put in. Sometimes that would happen. Uh, the, uh, there's a good example of it in, uh, the, in John, the woman caught in, caught in adultery. I won't talk about it today. I'll save that for another time, but that probably wasn't in the original gospel of John. It's okay. It's not non-scripture. Uh, it's not anything we need to be worried about. But what happened here, verse 38, 
is that, or rather verse 37, is that that verse, that, and, and you'd have something like, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That might be what you find there. That doesn't show up in any manuscript until about the second century. It doesn't show up in the earliest stuff we have that show, that's closest to when Luke wrote Acts. So what happened was along the way, because that is, it is testified to by the early church fathers that that's kind of a formula they used. We say, would you like to ask Jesus into your heart today as a, as a, a kind of a formula for understanding what happens in salvation. This was a formula that they used in, uh, uh, in their conversations, evangelistic conversations. If you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But it was added later on. So we don't consider it to be original to what Luke wrote. Is it wrong? Nope. Is it bad? Uh-uh. Is it something good to, to understand is there and talk about? Sure. Is it the, the scripture as God gave it to Luke? Very, very unlikely. So, some of your Bibles now will put that down in the bottom or in the footnote. It's not anybody taken away from scripture. As a matter of fact, as I said, it's probably added to scripture. And if it wasn't originally what God said, we don't want it to be in there, even if it is helpful to us, a good comment or a good commentary. So, what we do understand, though, with that verse 37 being there or not being there, is that the, the Ethiopian responded from his heart. That is clear. It's, it's clear that is what happened. That conversation probably even took place like that, but they didn't put it in there. But the Ethiopian did. And then what happens? They, they came up out of the water. I, mean, it, it, I, I hope that, that Philip got the Ethiopian all the way up before God took him away. You know, I'm, I'm envisioning like some of the videos you see online of the, the baptisms gone wrong, something like that. But I, I think probably if, as we read the, the scripture, uh, when they came up out of the water, yeah, so they probably walking out, boom, Philip was gone. Spirit took him away. Admittedly, it's not hard to go where God is working when, when that's how you get there. But there's a lot in verse 40. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he was traveling and, and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Uh, Azotus would have been down the road that he was traveling. So he came from Samaria, he went through Jerusalem, he got on that desert road to Gaza, and on the way there he meets the Ethiopian, and boom, God takes him all the way uh, to where he was wanting to go. Ashdod is actually where Azotus is the current name of Azotus. And then we find out in uh, that verse that he works his way back up the coast along the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. He works his way up the coast and he lights in Caesarea. And if we go forward in Acts to about chapter 20 or 21, we find that Philip still lives in Caesarea. It's been about 20 years later and he has four daughters and they all prophesy. Now, how is that looking for God, where God is working? Well, we don't have any more details about what Philip did. But we know he worked his way up the coast, doing what he had done in Samaria, looking for people that were searching, looking for opportunities uh, where God was working. 
and who to talk to and who to tell. And he planted churches along the way until he made it up to, Samaria, to Caesarea where he then lived for quite some time and raised believing daughters who were powerful in the church. That's our story of Philip. But let's not, let's not end it quite yet. Back up to verse 39. Philip's gone. Eunuch didn't see him any longer, but went on his way rejoicing. We go back to uh, the first part of chapter 6 to the, uh, rather chapter 8, to where he was uh, uh, witnessing in Samaria that uh, joy was all over the towns. Uh, they, they were excited about what was going on. There was great joy in those towns because the gospel came. Because the gospel came to a people who were unsavable. Remember, we talked about that last week. Well, today we have an even more unsavable, unsavory character. God-fearer, but further outside of what they thought should be God's people. I'll ask you again, just like I, I did last week, do you believe that there is joy when somebody who can't be saved gets saved. This guy worshipped God, but was told, you can worship him, but you can't get close to him. He's yours from a distance, but he's not yours, yours. You don't get a relationship with him because you got too many things wrong with you. You're the wrong color. You're the wrong ethnicity. You're from the wrong country. You're from the wrong religion, and you don't have the right parts. You can't get close to God. And what Philip comes and does is he tells them from the Old Testament that made the laws, made the rules, from a passage in the prophet that says in that, later on in that chapter, uh, that, uh, oh, I meant to write this down. Uh, Isaiah, I'm sorry, not in that chapter. Earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah says, the whole world is going to come and worship God. And it specifically mentions eunuchs. Imagine if he had read that. I want to say that was chapter 46 or 47 of Isaiah. Imagine if he had already read that. He read that and, and he knew who he was. And he read this chapter someday. Someday, even I will get to have a relationship with God. Maybe, maybe he had been reading that in the chariot. right? It's pretty nice to think. He'd been driving along on this road to Gaza, and he had read chapter 46 and 47, 48, 49, 50, 50, gets 52, and, and, and reads this, oh, mercy. Wow, I wonder who he's talking about here. This dude comes running up. Can I explain it to you? Yeah, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He, he fixes everything. He, he fixes every relationship. You can have a relationship with God. No, I can't. I, I, I'm a Gentile. I'm, I'm a eunuch. I, I, can't, I, 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 can, I can see him from far. No, no, Philip says, you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I bet at some point, maybe after Philip left, that light bulb went on. I just read that. I just read that I could have a relationship with the Lord. Isaiah said it was coming someday. Today is someday. 
I have a relationship with God. Why? Because Philip was obedient. Because Philip said, God, your, your instruction doesn't make a bit of sense, but I'm going to go. And God was working on the heart of that Ethiopian. We see in this passage that God is working out his plan. His plan is to get the gospel to the world. That's what he's doing. God's not interested in your comfort and my comfort and your happiness and my happiness, and he's not interested in all those things. He's not interested, interested really if we have enough food to eat or enough water to drink. Those are good things, and he, he wants to give us good things, but that's not his concern. His concern is the gospel to the world. And we see as we read this passage, God is beginning to do that. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Today, 2,000 years later, we are that plan. We are the plan to get the gospel to the world. There's no plan B. The church is plan A, and there's not a plan B. And it's the universal church, and it's the individual church. And if the individual church doesn't get with the plan, God says, fine, I'll take my lampstand back, you're done, I'll go to a church that wants to be obedient, wants to go to the road, to the desert, when I won't give them any more information. We are that plan. When God invites us, when God invites you, he's already working. Right? With Philip, he was already working in the Ethiopian's life. When he said, go to the road, he knew the Ethiopian would be there. That was not a surprise to God. It was not a happy, sac- uh, a happy circumstance. When God shows you what he's doing, that is your invitation to join him. That's not the time to argue. Well, this probably isn't God. Oh, is this the best time? I really have an appointment. No, when God shows you, that's the invitation. Look around. Look around and see how God is working. Be aware of what he's doing. Find yourself working your way up the Mediterranean coast, preaching to crowd after crowd after crowd in town after town after town because you started in one spot where God told you and you saw, wait, he's working over here. They're questioning, they're wondering, they're reading. Oh, he's working over here. This person's going through something. I, I, I know what they're going through. I've been through that myself. And I know that had I not had Jesus, I would not have gotten through it on my own. You, you look for those opportunities and you join him. And remember that Philip had no more qualifications than you have. He was no more special, no more degreed, no more educated, no more uh, prepared. He is just a guy, just a helper at the church. And God used him to begin the missionary work to uh, Samaria and the ends of the earth. We kind of bump over Philip a little bit, and we go to Peter and Cornelius, and we go to Paul to the Gentiles, but it starts really starts with the elected helper to the Benevolence Committee. What can't we do if we are obedient and go when God tells us to go? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you still call us. Thank you that you still work on our hearts. Thank you that that you still invite us. You still show us where you're working. And I pray for believers this morning that we will see what you're doing and we will go and we will join you there. And when you, when you tell us to go, we won't question the why and the how and that just doesn't make sense, Lord. But we will go because we know you have prepared something for us and we're going to miss out 
if we don't do what you tell us to do. So Lord, may we go as you send us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So God's working. God's plan is to, is to save the world. Uh, this morning, God's plan might be to save just one of you. See, God is working in the world to bring people to himself. And there may be somebody here this morning who's never accepted Christ as their Savior, never repented of their sins, but he is working on you this morning. And you can know that salvation. You, you need to understand who God is, that he is holy and just, that he will punish sin eternally. You need to understand who you are. You are willfully sinful, fallen. You are destined for everlasting torment and judgment. That, that punishment is for you because of your sinfulness. And there is no escape by your own hand, by your own work. But Jesus, but Jesus is the perfect Son of God who took our place on the cross, took our punishment. He took our sin on the cross so that sin is no longer counted against us. And he died for everyone, everyone here, everyone listening, everyone hearing this message, and everybody who doesn't. He died for everybody. So that means this morning, as you hear this message, he died for you. And then he rose three days later to prove to you he had the power over sin and death. So your response then this morning needs to be repent of your sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him. And give your life to him. That's your response this morning as an unbeliever. That, that's the only invitation you need to worry about this morning. If you've never trusted Christ, the invitation to follow Jesus, that's what you need to worry about. Believer, your invitation this morning is to be obedient, to see where he is working, to, to go where he invites you, and know that he's taking care of what you have to do when you get there. So what is your response this morning? Believer, come to the altar. Come to the cross. Give it to him. Say, Lord, I have not been obedient to go when you've told me to go, but I will from now on. Unbeliever, would you like to talk to me or Jordan about uh, accepting Christ? Is it Jordan this week? I can't ever keep up. Jordan uh, this week about accepting Christ. He'll be over here in this corner. I'll be over there in this one. Maybe you just want us to pray with you. Whatever it is, you make a decision this morning for Christ, believer or unbeliever, and let's stand and do business with God as we sing this morning.